Hi guys, this is your host Trey and Jamie with the Dream Team Podcast. This is a podcast where we discuss everything about anesthesia and provide you with an easy way to earn continuing education credits. Thanks for listening today. So, so let's, let's get, get to it. it. Uh, hello all, we have, us, have with us today Dr. Emmett Whitaker, who is kindly taking out time to talk with us today about neurotoxicity related to anesthesia and the developing brain. So, Dr. Whitaker, can you give us a little bit of information about your background and what got you interested in anesthesia-related neurotoxicity? Well, first of all, Trey and uh, Jamie, thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure and an honor. Um, happy to go through my background a little bit. So, I uh, went to medical school at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry uh, in Rochester, New York, um, and I did all my training after medical school. Uh, at Johns Hopkins. So I did uh, residency in anesthesiology and a fellowship in clinical research, as well as a fellowship in pediatric anesthesia. Um, the first five years of my life as a faculty member were at uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital, where I had the honor and pleasure of meeting and working with both of you. Um, and in 2018, I transitioned my practice to the University of Vermont um, in Burlington. So uh, that was kind of my training and uh, uh, career trajectory. Um, I split my time between clinical medicine, uh, doing uh, adult and pediatric anesthesia, and um, uh, 50% uh, doing research. I have a basic science lab, and I do some um, clinical translational work as well. Okay, very good. So, you know, we're talking today about neurotoxicity specifically, you know, what specifically got you interested in that? So when I was a fellow at Johns Hopkins, um, we were required to do a, some sort of a scholarly project as part of our fellowship. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, most fellows do a small clinical project or a case series or, you know, write up a case report. Um, and I was planning on doing kind of the same thing. Uh, but I met a young, enthusiastic pediatric anesthesiologist who was working in the field of um, uh, brain function after pediatric cardiac arrest. And she had kind of uh, developed a side interest in this question of neurotoxicity, which, you know, as a fellow in 2012, I had never really heard of. Um, it wasn't a new topic, but it was something that wasn't on the, you know, in the forefront of our minds as people that provide anesthesia for children. Um, she kind of, uh, you know, mentioned that she was doing some of this work on the side and uh, described it to me. And I was kind of intrigued um, and I knew it was going to be a lot more work than what I was originally planning to do. But uh, I decided to, you know, jump in with both feet and see what I could accomplish in a year. And she had developed this uh, piglet model, a higher um, uh, mammalian model of, of uh, neurologic disease. And she used it to, you know, induce cardiac arrest and see what happens to the brain after, uh, you know, a, an animal is resuscitated from cardiac arrest. Um, so it was a very easy and natural transition to take that model and, and look at anesthetic neurotoxicity. Um, so that's what I did. She, she taught me the model and, uh, uh, I performed a number of experiments while I was a fellow. And then after that, I was kind of hooked. Um, and I've been involved in one way or another with the neurotoxicity field and, and the research surrounding that since. Yeah, very interesting. So what gave rise to suspicion of anesthesia-related neurotoxicity in the medical community? Is it, You said it's not a new topic, but do you know when we first started looking at neurotoxicity in our patients? 
Yeah, so I mean, it's that's a great question. It is not in any way a new field. Um, when I've given presentations on this topic in the past, and you know, done pretty extensive research uh, for background, I actually found some papers that described um, neuropsychiatric or neurobehavioral changes after anesthesia you know, in, the, in the early 70s. Um, and it turns out what they were probably noticing, measuring, um, and describing was what we now call uh, emergence delirium. You know, they, they described that you know, children that had received anesthesia in the immediate postoperative period would be you know, difficult to control and have quote unquote behavioral problems. And they also interestingly noted that you know, opioids seem to make it go away. Um, but that was the first time, if you look in the literature, um, you know, where there's a direct effect or there was a supposed direct effect of anesthetics on uh, neurocognition in children. Um, the kind of birth of the neurotoxicity, the anesthetic neurotoxicity uh, field as we know it today um, happened back in the early 2000s, really late 19, uh, 1990s and early 2000s with John Olney and Vesna Todorovic um, uh, and their group uh, working on different types of modulators of uh, GABA and NMDA receptors in animals. Uh, and it started off with actually ethanol. So they, they were investigating um, fetal alcohol syndrome and, and they found that if you give alcohol to a, um, uh, to a pregnant rat, the, the babies, uh, have this widespread neurodegeneration. And they moved on to kind of looking at the ketamine-like drugs, nitrous oxide, uh, but the kind of the seminal paper that, that everybody uh, talks about where this was initially described, um, uh, you know, in earnest was a 2003 paper uh, where they noted widespread uh, neuroapoptosis after exposure to isoflurane in combinations with a number of other medications. Um, and that, that paper has been cited over 1200 times it's a very you know famous paper in our field because it, it uh, is the first paper to really identify anesthetics specifically as having neurotoxic effects um, since then there have been literally thousands of publications uh, on this particular you know one element of this area or another um, and that ranges from retrospective studies to prospective clinical studies in humans and all different sorts of, of animal studies that um, you know, that, that kind of support this idea that anesthetics cause neurodegeneration or altered neurodevelopment in, in animals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we were looking at the effects of these anesthetics or potential effects, um, do, are we just looking at behavioral changes, you know, one, two, three, five years out, or are there things that we're doing to measure to, to directly measure it? Uh, do we do inflammatory markers or are there other things that we're measuring to try to get a bead on what's going on? So initially um, the, uh, the buzzword was apoptosis. So the, um, the initial studies, including the one that I, that I just referenced from 2003, um, what they noticed was when they uh, performed an assay to identify cells, neurons that were undergoing apoptosis, they just saw widespread apoptosis of neurons in the entire brain of animals that had been exposed to anesthetic agents um, when compared to animals that had not. Uh, so for many, many years, and, and to this day, in certain ways, apoptosis has kind of been the metric for uh, this neurodegeneration, um, uh, as we call it, 
after uh, exposure to anesthetics. Um, so for people in the audience that might not know what apoptosis is, it's programmed cell death. So it is a normal um, process that is actually required for normal neurodevelopment. Um, human babies and, and really all um, juvenile animals undergo this process called neuronal pruning. Uh, we're all born with more neurons than we need. Um, and it's very normal for neurons to die um, uh, during the process of neurodevelopment. And they have to in order to make room for other types of cells and, and dendritic arborization and all of those sorts of things that have to happen for neurodevelopment to be normal. The idea, I think, is that um, the anesthetics trigger apoptosis when it's not supposed to happen. Uh, and that, of course, is, is a problem. Um, since uh, the apoptosis question has more or less been answered, you know, it's, it's been looked at in a very broad range of animal models with essentially every known um, contemporarily used anesthetic agent. Um, people started looking at other things. So dendritic arborization, um, synaptic plasticity, connections between neurons, how neurons talk to each other, and even things like oligodendrocytes, um, looking at you know, the, the normal and abnormal myelinization of, of uh, nerves in the, in the central nervous system. Um, and so the field has matured a lot, um, but you, you bring up a good point, which is the, the neurocognitive endpoints. Um, yeah, I think most would agree that uh, even if you can demonstrate, you know, widespread apoptosis, if the animals um, down the line are uh, indistinguishable from animals that didn't receive any anesthesia behaviorally, you know, they meet all their neurodevelopmental milestones, they seem to be just as intelligent and adaptable as animals that didn't receive any anesthesia, then it's, it's hard to make the argument that this apoptosis that's observed is is important or relevant. And in the animal studies, we've seen um, a pretty inconsistent uh, result when it comes to neurocognitive outcomes. So some studies show that there is uh, neurocognitive change consistent with the neurodegeneration that is seen in the brain. Uh, some animal studies show that there is not a consistent um, change. So, you know, the animals may have kind of widespread apoptosis, but they don't have an associated neurocognitive change. And those equivocal results are difficult to interpret in context, um, particularly because it's difficult to know what is translatable to a human and what is not, particularly in the, in the rodent models. Um, moving to the human studies, which of course are the, the most important, um, we're just now kind of in the last couple of years starting to get the data and the results from the first few prospective randomized clinical trials. Um, and surprisingly, given how robust the animal data are supporting that there is a neurodegenerative change in, uh, in developing brain exposed to anesthesia, um, the, these first studies have all very clearly shown no difference. Um, when a child who's otherwise healthy, who re receives a single brief you know, anesthetic approximately an hour long um, in infancy, um, the investigators were not able to demonstrate any different difference in neurocognitive outcomes um, down the road in those in those children. So uh, we like to refer to those studies as reassuring, um, and they you know they were surprising to many people in the field that you know have seen you know ten plus 15, 20 years of data that kind of unequivocally show this apoptosis and other you know neurodegenerative changes in young animals, um, just not necessarily bearing out in humans. 
So to answer your question, <laughs> there are a lot of different ways to measure and demonstrate this uh, neurodegeneration in, um, uh, in the case of, of anesthetic exposure in infancy. Um, and it kind of depends upon the model as well as, uh, you know, the endpoint. Okay. Yeah. You know, you kind of touched on the next question I had kind of to follow along here. Um, so, you know, I guess to furthermore, you started using the piglet model and why did you use this over say a mouse model or, you know, something else, some other animal model? Yeah, so I mean, rodent models are are absolutely critical to biomedical discovery, and I'll say that because um, you know they they have uh, attributes that allow us to do studies that you can't really do in any other model, including transgenic um, uh, capabilities. So you know, in mice, I I can uh, you know, delete a gene or or you know genetically. Um, stop a mouse from producing a particular protein, which is, is hugely powerful in terms of identifying mechanisms of, you know, for instance, neurotoxicity or apoptosis. Um, the vast majority of higher animal models are not, um, uh, you know, don't have that, don't have that possibility. Um, when it comes to animal models, probably the very best um, animal model out there, of course, is, is primates, so monkeys. Um, the monkeys, as we know, are, are genetically and um, anatomically very, very similar to humans. And so if there is a, an animal model that is translatable to humans, it's probably them. Um, the difficulty is uh, monkeys are extremely difficult to handle. Um, they're uh, exceedingly expensive. Uh, they have very long lifespan. So, it, you know, it's, uh, you're looking at a very longitudinal experience. Um, and to, to be honest, they, they can be dangerous as well. Um, they are uh, strong and, and uh, can become violent in certain situations. So um, uh, one of the reasons that I chose uh, the piglet model, or, or really my mentor chose the piglet model and then kind of passed it on to me, is because it kind of bridges that gap. So uh, piglets have complex brains that are similar to humans, um, and young animals, or I'm sorry, young pigs, meet similar uh, neurodevelopmental milestones to humans um, in a shorter period of time, of course. So um, it's estimated that an adult pig has the intelligence um, and neurocognitive abilities of approximately a three-year-old human uh, child. And so they are extremely intelligent animals. Um, and uh, a lot of the uh, neurodevelopmental milestones in infancy with, um, with piglets can be extrapolated to, uh, you know, to humans. Again, not a perfect translational model, but but certainly um, uh, in many ways uh, preferable to to rodent models. Um, the piglets are very, are expensive. They're not they're not nearly as expensive as as um, as uh, uh, monkeys, um, primates. Uh, but uh, there are some um, things that make them a little bit more difficult to deal with than, than rodents as, as well. But in all, um, a, a, a model similar to, uh, to piglets um, has a lot of the advantages of a primate model and very few of the drawbacks, which is how we kind of landed on that. Okay. Well, um, there does seem to be evidence on both sides of thinking uh, of this topic. The evidence at this point you know, from my own reading seems to point more closely or be more closely related to age and duration of anesthetic. And this being uh, younger and older, the younger the old, or the older the patient and 
uh, the, the, the increased duration having the biggest impact on the brain. Uh, can you confirm or challenge this idea as far as we know? Yeah. Um, so like I kind of alluded to earlier, uh, the, it's pretty clear, um, fairly convincing in my opinion, that a single exposure uh, during neurodevelopment in a healthy child is probably safe. Um, and we always have to you know, take into consideration the fact that we don't really do too much in the way of purely elective surgery in infants. Um, usually if we do it, it needs to be done. And of, of course, we can't do that without anesthesia. It's not really practical or, or, or uh, uh, ethical to be perfectly um, straightforward with it. Um, and, and so between those studies and the need for anesthesia for surgical procedures, you know, I'm pretty comfortable um, uh, reassuring parents. And if I had a young child that needed uh, anesthesia in the first year of life, I, I would be very comfortable with that. But as you mentioned, um, we're starting to get some information about other populations. So children that have longer exposures, so longer surgeries, um, children that have multiple exposures. So, you know, a child that has three anesthetics um, in young uh, life rather than one. Uh, and then, of course, we have to consider the sick kids. So, you know, for instance, your, your child with hydrocephalus who, who, you know, may have six, seven, eight um, yeah, shunt revisions in, in, in their young life. Um, those kids may have a higher increased um, risk of, of neurocognitive changes down the line. Um, and it's uh, interesting because we're starting to get the, some results of large retrospective database studies that have looked at that. They've looked at, you know, multiple exposures versus one exposure versus no exposure. And um, there's studies looking at, you know, children that have cancer that are having multiple anesthetics for, you know, LPs and intrathecal chemo. And we're starting to understand that there, there may be um, an association of those multiple exposures with uh, changes in, in neurocognitive development. And that's not just things like cognition, it's also motor development, and it's also incidence of certain types of neuropsychiatric disorders like ADHD and even autism. Um, and so most agree at this point that there are, a, there are definitely um, enough data and, and, and reasons to um, undertake these uh, very expensive and time-consuming studies that will look at those, those elements. So prospective um, randomized controlled trials uh, that will allow us to answer the question of, you know, multiple, multiple exposures to anesthesia, does that matter? Um, and like I mentioned, these studies are, are expensive and, and they do take a long time to do, but um, I think most would agree that we have enough data from large databases at this point that we really do need to know um, what the best way to care for children that have multiple exposures is. Okay. Well, that kind of leads into my next question. You know, are, are there agents considered, anesthetic agents considered more uh, harmful? Um, are there ways to ameliorate these presumed neurotoxic effects? Like, you know, you know, I sent you a couple of questions ahead of time and said, talking about Presidex, is it Per, 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 I'm sorry, <laughs> does it perform a role, um, you know, SIBO versus propofol, you know, uh, what are, do you have any, th any evidence of anything that could help? Mitigate these behavioral changes or neurocognitive changes? 
Sure. Um, so the the fact that this has been studied for so long means that pretty much every anesthetic drug we use routinely has been tested. Um, the most studied have been um, kind of the prototypical volatile anesthetics, uh, isoflurane, you know, sevoflurane, nitrous oxide, um, the ones that we use uh, a fair bit. Um, the, in fact, the, that initial kind of seminal study I spoke about earlier um, looked at isoflurane in combination with either nitrous oxide or midazolam. Uh, and so, though you know the, the, that initial study that demonstrated such robust neuroapoptosis, you know, looked at those particular drugs. Um, since then, essentially every medication we use has been shown to induce apoptosis in animal models. Um, the prospective human studies we've done so far have been exclusively with sevoflurane, uh, and so it's conceivable that other anesthetics may cause more neurocognitive change in humans than sevoflurane does. But, um, you know, since sevoflurane is far and away the most commonly used pediatric anesthetic, it's uh, that study, those studies certainly have relevance. Um, so you asked specifically about uh, dexmedetomidine. So uh, dexmedetomidine is the only um, sedative hypnotic that I know about that has actually not been shown to cause apoptosis in animal models at clinical doses. There have been a couple of studies that have shown um, neuroapoptosis in the brain of developing rats, um, rats or mice, uh, at very high doses, um, but uh, those are considered to be non-clinically relevant doses. Again, getting back to the idea of you know translatability to humans, um, the doses they used for those studies were high in human terms, but not necessarily in rat terms. And so it's possible that the high doses they used were clinically relevant doses for rats. A um, little bit of uh, ambiguity there. Um, but the doses, uh, I'm sorry, the studies they did uh, where they used human appropriate doses and dexmedetomidine, they did not see um, any apoptosis. And further, they actually saw a protective effect of dexmedetomidine against neuroapoptosis in animals that use, that also received um, isoflurane or another halogenated anesthetic. So uh, the idea is, well, potentially a dexmedetomidine-based general anesthetic would be safer, you know, quote-unquote safer for children because it, it, either it is kind of a neutral effect or potentially um, uh, decreases the risk of these neurocognitive effects. And so there are a couple of prospe prospective clinical trials that are going on right now, looking at a couple of different regimens that use dexmedetomidine uh, as a large part of the anesthetic. Um, now, the problem with dexmedetomidine is, is it's, a, it's a good sedative, but it doesn't have much in the way of analgesic properties when it comes to significant surgical stimulation, like during the operation. Um, and it is not considered to be appropriate or sufficient as a sole anesthetic agent. So these studies that are being done um, combine dexmedetomidine with other approaches. So one of them is a dexmedetomidine plus remifentanil study. So they're looking at uh, dexmedetomidine and remifentanil to see how those kids do. They've already published their um, uh, the results uh, of the feasibility there. So they've been able to really um, you know crank out those anesthetics with no major complications. Uh, there's one study that's looking at um, low-dose sevoflurane plus dexmedetomidine. So, you know, looking and seeing 
okay, we're going to use sevoflurane, but we're going to use a lower dose and do a lot of the anesthetic heavy lifting with, um, with the dexmedetomidine itself. And so we'll see what happens with that, that trial. And then finally, they're doing a, another trial, and I believe it's at Mayo, um, where they're doing uh, awake caudals um, and, and sedating the kids with um, dexmedetomidine. So it's kind of a feasibility of, of doing an awake regional technique um, that's supplemental, supplemented, supplemented with, um, dexmedetomidine. So, you know, there's, there are a, a bunch of groups that are looking at, you know, the potential of dexmedetomidine to replace a lot of the things that, that we, you know, generally do in the operating room with other anesthetics. Um, you know, I question whether or not that's really necessary given, uh, the, the results of the prospective studies to date. But if we do demonstrate that multiple anesthetics are, you know, for instance, multiple anesthetics or long anesthetics are, are, are risky, um, then it would be nice to have an alternative um, that may be less risky. Okay. Awesome. Uh, so in following up with the previous question, uh, I do know that you're involved with spinal anesthetics in the pediatric population. Um, can you spend a little bit of time talking about this? Uh, you know, you get a blank canvas. I know you helped start the program at NCH, and uh, I would be really interested to see what you found interesting about using spinal for our urology kids. Sure. So, um, you know, the nice thing about pediatric anesthesia, you know, as you know, is we're a pretty small, uh, community. And so, you know, way back in the, in the day when I was very first, uh, you know, first starting out as an attending, I remember speaking to some, um, to some faculty at the university of Vermont, which of course is where I am now. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I formed a connection with them way back in 2013. Um, and they told me about their experience with, with spinal anesthesia and, you know, the university of Vermont pediatric anesthesia division has, has been doing spinals, awake spinal anesthesia for kids since, uh, the mid 1970s. So they have a lot of experience. Um, so I was very interested in, in trying it very early on, uh, because it just seemed like something that would be great to do. Um, you know, if it were my kid and you were telling me I could avoid narcotics and supplemental oxygen and putting in a breathing tube, and that sounds pretty great to me. Um, really didn't, uh, uh, really didn't even enter my mind that, uh, you know, it would, it would kind of obviate the need for general anesthetics that might cause neurotoxicity. Um, and so I, you know, I kind of, uh, got to talking about this with one of my pediatric urology colleagues at the time, um, and he was kind of just blown away by the potential for, uh, you know, performing his operations under an anesthetic that doesn't require really any other medications in most cases. Um, and so we kind of uh, put our heads together and, and um, collaborated with uh, all of our colleagues in nursing, uh, our CRNA colleagues, really, you know, some of the hardest to convince were my, you know, co-anesthesiologists. Um, and, and once people saw what could be done with, um, uh, spinal anesthesia in, in babies and infants, um, it was kind of off to the races. And I, you know, since I left NCH, I know that your spinal anesthesia program has continued to grow. Um, but it really became interesting because when we started doing this, we kind of realized, you know, this is an opportunity to provide a surgical anesthetic that takes neurotoxicity off the table. So we don't know. I remember saying to one of my colleagues, you know, we don't know if neurotoxicity is a real thing or not. And we still really don't know for sure if it's a real thing or not. But when you do spinal anesthesia, it takes it off the table. Um, you're not administering any volatile anesthetics or nitrous oxide. 
um, you aren't giving any extra oxygen. You don't have to worry about hypocapnia or low blood pressure or hypoxia because these kids just really don't experience those things like they can during general anesthesia. Um, and, and such a huge number of cases that, that can be done with this technique. Uh, it's not um, your typical ingle hernia repairs that um, kids with BPD used to have spinals for because they were so high risk from a lung function standpoint. Um, and it has become very clear to me over the last six years of doing spinal anesthetics for one reason or another is that, you know, they, it really is superior in, in many ways to general anesthesia. And so I'm a big proponent of it. I, I have a lot of passion for providing that anesthetic. And I, I, I tell, you know, parents, if I had a, a six month old, this is what I, I would want for, for him or her. And I really do mean that. Um, with regards to, to neurotoxicity, it's interesting because, uh, you know, sometimes babies get fussy when they're awake in the operating room and, and it doesn't have anything to do with pain in most cases. It really just has to do with the fact that they don't want to be there. Um, and incidentally, my go-to sedative to help them, you know, help take the edge off and just help them relax is dexmedetomidine. So even in the case of a spinal, when a child needs uh, a small dose of sedative, you know, we're giving the sedative that we know, or at least we have a very, very good idea, doesn't cause any neurotoxicity. And so, you know, in my, in, in my mind, it is really an ideal anesthetic in most cases. Recently done a little bit of research where we looked at, at full montage EEG on kids that have um, undergone spinal anesthetic. And as you guys know, they typically fall asleep shortly after you put the spinal in. And we, were, we wanted to see why that was. So that's why we did, you know, un unprocessed electroencephalogram on them. And it turns out that um, when they fall asleep, it's not a sedative effect. It is uh, physiologic sleep. So the, the, the EEG waveforms look exactly like a child that has fallen asleep. Um, there are very characteristic findings on EEG that are consistent with physiologic sleep. And 100% of the patients in our initial study showed that. So it may be that the sleep that occurs with spinal anesthesia is not only safe, it's also restorative. And how amazing would that be if we had this anesthetic we can provide um, where realistically the, the kid is experiencing something that is restorative to the brain, um, not just uh, safe, but also restorative. And so um, when it comes, there are a lot of reasons to do spinal. I think spinal anesthetics in children are, are the right thing to do in many, many cases, um, neurotoxicity aside. But the nice thing about spinal is that it just takes that off the table. You don't even have to worry about it because nothing you're doing has the potential for neurotoxicity. And those spinals that, that you were talking about where the EEG represented normal sleep in children, were those spinals including clonidine in them? Oh, that's a great question. So um, you can do a spinal anesthetic in a baby with just plain local anesthetic, or you can use additives. And um, I like to use clonidine, uh, as you referenced, because I, I think it provides a, a denser block. It certainly prolongs the block, and I think it helps a little bit with the sedation um, to help them kind of calm and relax, um, you know, and not surprisingly, given that you're giving uh, clonidine intrathecally. Um, but our study ended up, this we didn't do this intentionally, but our study ended up kind of splitting 50-50 between kids that had received clonidine and kids that had not. And the EEGs were indistinguishable. Mm -hmm. So our neurologists that wrote, read the EEGs couldn't tell the difference between the kids that got clonidine and the kids that could not. So um, they, they showed very, very similar um, EEG uh, 
signatures that were consistent with sleep. Well, that's, that's a great interesting. Question. That's interesting because I was I was curious. I was wondering if that sleep was due to the clonidine or or not. Yeah, when we um, when we when we went to publish that paper, that was one of the primary uh, uh, criticism criticisms we got, and it was kind of like, you know, oh, it's obviously the clonidine, and so we had to, you know, <laughs> rewrite that part of the paper to, to show them that, um, you know, we, we got the same result in both boards. Yeah. Yeah. How I have a question. How do you address the parental concerns um, that they may have if they are questioning? the behavior changes or neurocognitive changes that the anesthetic may have on their child, either immediately or in the future. Some parents are uh, have read up on things, or some parents are just afraid of anesthesia in general. Uh, but the ones that have read up and are aware that there have been, there, there's been research and neurocognitive changes and aware of the the things that we're looking at over the last um, 10 years, a little more closely. Um, how do we address those concerns? I know you said that the single shore anesthetics, you know, we consider are fairly safe, but we, we that work in larger institutions see a lot of kids that, that come back for multiple, multiple, multiple anesthetics. Sometimes, you know, three anesthetics within a few days or, you know, something like that. But how do we talk to those parents that have those concerns? So that's a great question, um, and I think the best answer I can give is um, I'm not sure. Uh, I will tell you what I do, and I will tell you what I have experienced um, uh, in talking to my colleagues from other large institutions. So um, I will say that I, I've had a strikingly low number of parents actually ask me about that compared to what I expected, especially after the FDA released their uh, kind of um, quote unquote black box warning about anesthetics. Um, I expected to, you know, be, I, I expected to hear at least a question about this a day. Mm-hmm. I think I've probably been asked a handful of times since I've been an attending, which is nearly nine years now, which is a little weird to me. But when I do get asked about it, I take it very seriously um, because there are so many things um, that can happen to a child that can affect their neurocognitive development. And I think it's very easy to point to an anesthetic exposure and say that must be what it was. Um, and we live in, a, unfortunately, a very litigious society. And um, I, I, I think that depending on how it evolves, this question of neurotoxicity could, could certainly affect us as, as anesthesia providers for children. Um, and I will say also that it's extremely variable across state and institution. Um, so there are institutions I know of that have very clear guidelines on what needs to be disclosed to the parents, and it's actually included in their informed consent, down to and including it's essentially ignored by the institution. Um, and not, not ignored in the sense that they don't care, but ignored in the sense that it doesn't come up as part of the informed consent. And so each practitioner has to kind of decide what they are comfortable with. Um, I do not personally, and I do not know anyone personally that um, brings it up during the consent process as part of their standard and informed consent. Um, I will certainly address it if a parent brings it up. Um, uh, and usually what I say to them is, is that the, the fair, the most fair answer is we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, we have studies and I always point to the studies that are well designed and very well executed that suggest that, you know, your healthy child who's hopefully going to have one anesthetic will be fine. Um, And uh, I say, 
follow-up studies um, you know, may suggest that multiple anesthetics may cause a little bit more of a problem, um, but we really just don't know. And I wrap it up by saying your child needs the surgery, and this is the most important part in my mind, your child needs the surgery. We can't do without anesthesia. We're going to do it very carefully, and we're going to control things that we know cause problems like blood pressure, heart rate, make sure they've got enough oxygen, um, and that's the important thing. Uh, and I tell them if my child needed this surgery, I would proceed without hesitation. And that's the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, you know, with maybe with the exception of elective circumcisions, everything we need, we do needs to be done. So, um, you know, I, I, I focus on the fact that it's what the kid needs and we can't do it without anesthesia. So we're just going to do it in the safest way possible. And I'm sure there are listeners out there that disagree with my approach. Um, and I don't think there's a right answer. Um, the other thing that can come up and this actually has happened to me once, um, you know, sometimes you will have pa- parents that, you know, will, will come in with papers in their hands and say, you know, we've read that this drug dexmedetomidine is the safest drug. And I actually had a, a, a woman once that, that wanted um, that wanted me to give her, I don't know how I ended up with this patient, but who <laughs> wanted me. And this was like, it was like a five-year-old, you know, it wasn't somebody that was technically in the, um, um, you know, in the window of, of highest vulnerability. And she, she said, I want you to give my kid dexmedetomidine and remifentanil. And so I, luckily, luckily, I heard from her um, through pre-op in, well in advance of the morning of surgery. And so, you know, I talked to my boss and I said, look, what do you want me to do about this? Because, yeah, I, I, it's not, a, it's not, the anesthetic is not wrong. Um, it will work for this kid. I don't think it's contraindicated. I don't think it's necessary either. But in the interest of having this child have the surgery that they need, you know, I think, I think my gut is to just accommodate her request. And that's what we ended up doing. The kid did great. She was happy. She was comfortable. And in the unlikely event that the kid, God forbid, needs another anesthetic, I'm hoping that she'll feel comfortable enough to bring him in and actually have that done. Um, but that was, you know, that, that was a very, I, I think, probably rare occurrence uh, that, that, you know, I happened to have that experience. Um, so, so, yeah, I hope that answers your question. I, I think we can just be truthful with them and, um, and be honest, but certainly be very mindful about dissuading them from proceeding with a surgery that their child needs um, because of fears or concerns about uh, something that really is not clearly substantiated. Yeah, those are all great points. Absolutely. Well, Emmett, thank you so much for taking time. Um, yes, thank you. You have uh, so much great information to give people. You're so intelligent. I enjoy talking to you. Yeah. And as we wrap up, anyone that's interested um, can find a lot of this information on the website, smarttots.org. It's S-M-A-R-T-T-O-T-S.org. Um, and thanks again, Emmett. And hopefully we'll see you sometime soon. <laughs> sure thing. It's a pleasure, guys. All Thank right. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to another Dream Team podcast by Elite Anesthesia Education. Please go to our website at EliteAnesthesiaEducation.com and follow the steps to get your continuing education credit. Contact us if you would like to share an interesting case report or have an educational topic suggestion. We hope you will join us again soon.